Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Aquarius podcast. My special guest today is Matt Cochran. He's the lead advisor for Seven Investing. We're going to talk about his wide moat quality growth investing style right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Aquarius Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. So the reason that I really wanted to talk to you is I think that you explicitly straddle value and growth and I think you think about them as two different groups or maybe you don't and i just sort of wanted to get a feeling for how do you think about investing what's your what's your approach to it so i would say if you had to boil down my approach into two core principles um like at the end of the day one it's it's long-term buy and hold investing uh we can we can talk about like hashtag never sell if you want um because (laughs) (laughs) I, i figured you would i figured you would uh because I, I am mostly a believer in that. And, and then the second one is finding companies with economic moats, like competitive advantages, like uh, that it that it a company has against competitors in its field or industry. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about the moats first. So you, you you're not you're you're not necessarily dividing the world into value and growth. Your 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 approach is moats and then everything else. Yes. So uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct. Like, uh, ideally, ideally, uh, you can find both like value and growth in it when you make an entry into a, an investment that seems like it's hard to do right now. Uh, so I don't know if you have tips for me, but I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's harder now than it has been in the past for me anyway. Um, but like, ideally you, you find both in the same investment, but I think, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I was just going to say at this point in the market cycle, is that what you mean? Because it just seems like that that we've run up a lot. There's not as much around as there was, say, March 2020. Sure. Well, yeah, exactly. March 2020 for sure. But even five years ago, like uh, I, I just feel like right now the market, there's there's great companies and the market are valuing those companies like they're great. Um, and there's like not so great companies and you know, maybe that's where you find your traditional value investments, but they're not companies usually that I'm necessarily too interested in either. Let's talk a little bit about moats. What, what's your definition of a moat and what, what do you, can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say a moat is just a competitive advantage a company has, and you can break that down into, I'm very, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Pat Dorsey, you know, he breaks down economic moats into like network effects or high switching cost. uh, you know, uh, uh, patents, intellectual property, uh, you know, you, you could go on and on breaking them down into different categories, but just take, uh, just take, uh, 
take MasterCard and Visa, for example, right? So they uh, they have great network effects. Like I, I think a great mental model to do is like, uh, I, you know, Warren Buffett once said, I'm I might be butchering this quote, so don't, don't, don't like, uh, don't, don't grill me too hard for this quote. But he says something to the effect like, if you gave me, you know, a billion dollars, I couldn't make a competitor to Coca-Cola because its brand and distribution is just too great and I couldn't be successful. So I think a great mental model is like, if somebody gave me a billion dollars, could I make a network uh, credit card, a credit card network that rivals Visa and MasterCard, you know, or 10 billion or whatever that money is. I, I can't imagine someone giving me enough money to really make that work. Um, there are advantages that they already have the relationships with the banks, consumer recognition, security, all these things just make them, their moats are just, in my mind, incredible, incredible. So, you know, you can go to Facebook, like with its network effects, like, you know, it already has that user base that, uh, that's just very incredible. Like the more users that make content, the more people that want to come on and et cetera, et cetera. That's a very powerful network effect to attack. doesn't mean you can't make a rival social media company. Like I, I think like there's plenty of viable models out there. I mean, from TikTok to Snapchat to, to Twitter, you know, those are viable models, but like to, to, to usurp Facebook from their, their throne, uh, like as the king of, of social media companies would be extremely difficult. Right. So, and then you talk about like Salesforce with high switching costs, like once a company's data and once all their uh, information and all their, all, all their people and sales teams are trained on that platform, it's an incredibly expensive process to switch to a different platform. So like a platform like Salesforce has very high switching costs. Do you think that there have been some, I don't know if it's a, if it's a more recent phenomenon, because Buffett does talk about this too, that, you know, that the history of business is the history of moats being crossed given enough time. And it's not necessarily the case that all of them will be. And it seems that there are many like MasterCard and Visa that seem pretty robust, but they equally, they do have, there are competitors out there for them that are, that are making some incursions. How robust do you think they are now as opposed to where they were, say, 10 years ago? So with MasterCard and Visa specifically? So th that's a great question. So I would say, like, I, and because actually, I guess one of my special areas of interest is, is fintech and, uh, and financial services. So I would say there are definitely examples you can provide where, like, with Square, like I think is a is a fantastic example because they have a seller side ecosystem and a cash app consumer side. And what they're doing more and more, uh, especially with this acquisition of Afterpay, is like they're they're creating an overlap between the two, which is just a quote closed loop where they don't have to use MasterCards or Visa's rails. Um, like when a cash app user spends money on a square seller, like it can all stay within that, within that square ecosystem. Now, that being said, with that example, like Square was still a tremendous catalyst for MasterCard and Visa because now the, uh, you know, you go back 10 years and you at a farmer's market or a local seller, like they couldn't accept credit cards easily. You needed a landline, you needed like expensive hardware and you had to do like, you know, you had to go through this whole rigmarole to to accept a credit card. If you're a small merchant, you had a ton of cash only businesses out there. 
And Square, like they just created this dongle that you plug into your smartphone and all of a sudden you can take credit cards within minutes, on board within minutes. You go to Best Buy, you can buy it, you can buy it online. You plug it into your iPhone and you're set up within minutes. So even with these, uh, so even with like the encroachment of Square, which I think is like one of the better examples of how like uh, a company is chipping away at their user base. It was still overall a tremendous catalyst for MasterCard and Visa. And the more payments go digital, the more payments go online, the more MasterCard and Visa are going to be used, even if you can find small examples within those subsets where they're not used. So I think like you still look at the global use rate of cash, of checks, of like this, this old money, like the more that goes digital, the more it's going to be a catalyst for MasterCard and Visa. That's something like PayPal that I think has, since it's spun out, seems to have become uh, a more vigorous competitor to Visa and MasterCard. But it's also looking at other things like that, you know, Afterpay or those those examples of like layaway spending where anytime you go to a website, don't pay $120, pay four easy payments of $30. And I noticed last time, this is only in the last month or so that I saw when I went onto a site, PayPal said, would you like to pay for this with four easy payments, which kind of surprised it took them so long to get there, but they're here now. And it seems like a pretty stiff competition to Afterpay and those other sites like that. Yeah, I think PayPal is a tremendous company. So this is a company uh, I've, I've been invested in almost since it's eBay spin out. And in those, those very early days, um, like they were they were almost coming to a showdown with Visa and MasterCard. And they decided pretty early on after spinning out from eBay that they were just going to partner with everybody. And um, like Visa's old CEO, like Charlie Scharf was like, even there's like, there's a comment from him in this old conference uh, analyst call from like five years ago or so, where he's like uh, basically saying like, we're going to go to war with PayPal if, if they don't change. Right. And so it looked like it was coming to the showdown and, uh, and PayPal, a lot of people, I think, well, not a lot of people, but there were some people in PayPal at the time that thought PayPal blinked. Like this was this great showdown. PayPal was supposed to be the great disruptor of MasterCard and Visa and that they backed down from that. And um, it, 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 and I think, and think they sold out of it. And PayPal for like a year after that, the stock price didn't really move, even though they were showing pretty good results. But like, I would say like PayPal is mostly built on top of MasterCard and Visa pay rails, right? So like you go to your digital wallet and yes, you, you can have money stored in your wallet. I think for most people though, that's still a smaller amount. And, um, and when you make a transaction using the balance in your account, that's higher margins for PayPal. So that, the more they can get people to have money in their account, the better for PayPal, absolutely. But most of it is still built on top of the MasterCard and Visa rails. So even the whether you make whether you're paying for your designer shirt for $120 all at once, or you're splitting into like four payments over three months, or or whatever the case is, um, uh, you're still paying. You're usually still paying that with like a Mastercard or Visa debit card or credit card that's attached to your PayPal wallet. So I, I still think like these companies like it's easier for fintechs. If you're a fintech company, you want you want scale. And the quickest way to go about that is to go on top of MasterCards and Visa Trails. It's a very, very hard, difficult road to reach scale without doing that. So I think uh, even in like, again, like there are examples like, and PayPal has sellers too. 
So there are examples of PayPal users. You have a cash balance in your account and you can use that money to pay it out of PayPal merchant. It all stays within that, that PayPal umbrella. Those are very high margin transactions for PayPal, but by and large, using your PayPal wallet, using your cash app uh, digital wallet, you're still on top of those MasterCard and Visa rails. The one thing to go back to like more moats generally, like the one thing I think you can look for is something called like a moat attack. So Toby, I interviewed you about a year ago and I, it was one of my very first interviews. And I feel like I let you off the hook when we were talking about this because we, we started talking about economic moats and identifying moats. And we, we I, I said, I brought up moat attacks but I used a specific example of like Facebook and Google Plus attacking Facebook and, uh, and Facebook being able to withstand that quote unquote moat attack is kind of proof of their moat. Now you took that opportunity to talk about Facebook specifically, but I wanted to have like a more <laughs> general conversation about moat attacks. And I would say like, when you're looking for economic moats to look for those types of moat attacks and going back to MasterCard Visa, there's plenty of times where retailers, large retailers have tried to band together and make their own payment network because they don't like paying these fees to MasterCard and Visa, most of which actually go back to the banks. But still, like, you know, for a company like Walmart, those 2% to 3% transaction fees that they pay for every single credit card uh, transaction, it adds up really quick, right? Um, so they would love to get that money back. Um, but like, so these retailers have banded together before, and it's been, it's been extremely difficult uh, to, to attack MasterCard's and Visa's stranglehold on that. And I think that's kind of proof of, of their moat. Yeah, I like that approach. I think that's, I think that's a, a clever way of doing it. But, but Facebook in particular, Facebook is interesting because they have had that Instagram. I don't know if Instagram was an obvious competitor to them at that time, but Zuckerberg clearly identified it as such and bought them so early on for what seemed like an extraordinarily high price at the time, but now just a complete bargain. So right. I think that more than more than Facebook's moat in that instance, I might be more inclined to bet on Zuckerberg. How, how, do you, how do you feel about that sort of tension between the management and the, the, the economic characteristics of the business, which is more important to you? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I would say to try to tackle it more on a case-by-case -case basis, maybe. I, I would say, again, like ideally, Toby, uh, in an ideal world, you find both, right? So uh, like, let's look at Zuckerberg. Like for most, you know, it's almost, it's almost funny to me that the FTC now is attacking this as a, using that acquisition and the WhatsApp acquisition as a antitrust, like for the basis of their antitrust cases, because, for most of the time since they made those acquisitions, like the, the common criticism was, I can't believe Facebook paid this much money. Like, I mean, Instagram wasn't making any money when they bought it for a billion dollars. Uh, WhatsApp, it still hasn't made, like uh, even in all this time, I don't think it's recouped, it's about a $20 billion you know, acquisition price. Uh, and Zuckerberg, I think is, has shown phenomenal vision. You know, like I, I don't think he gets enough credit as a CEO because uh, he has, you know, what started off as a stupid website, you know, for, uh, for, for dating the, or for rating the attractiveness of girls, right? Or, or and then from there, from like a, a Harvard, just, it was just meant for Harvard students. 
he's shown incredible vision to navigate Facebook from that to the empire it is now. And uh, I, I think he's, he's very underrated as a CEO. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's that, that pivot from, um, yeah, I mean, Facebook, that's amazing, right? That was like a, a basically a, a hot or not for, uh, for Harvard or whatever it was, and then right. became the, the Facebook for, for Harvard. And I, if I think about examples of companies that have successfully pivoted, there aren't very many, but one that really springs to mind is Microsoft, which I think has pivoted um, several times now and very, very successfully and under different uh, CEOs too. So what, what is it that's, is there something in the water at Microsoft? Is it, uh, is it genetic? I think, you, you know, I, I would love to like somebody to study the history of this, but I think like, uh, are you familiar with Clayton Christensen and his work on like- uh, The Innovator's the, Dilemma. Correct. So I think, uh, I think that's now like standard, more standard business procedure. And I think more companies understand that now. I think before he wrote that, I think that would be a very underrated uh, uh, like understanding or business strategy, I guess, that like there, there are pivots necessary. And some of those pivots will immediately be, um, be a ding to profits, right? It'll like take a chunk out of profits. It won't be profitable at first. Like you could go back to, uh, you know, like before that, I mean, you have uh, Intel moving from memory chips to processing chips. I, I think it was in the seventies or eighties, right? When they did that. And, and like, it was a, it was hard for them to do it. Like, uh, you know, the, the founders of Intel, the, the leaders of Intel at the time, it was, it was a really hard move because you're leaving this profitable business that like led you to be like a, a great company to that time. But it was a move that had to be made because memory chips were just being commoditized. And they knew they could like, if they did this, it would immediately hurt profits. But like coming out of that, they could be the leader in that. And like, what a, what a run they had by doing that. I think, you know, Microsoft, like Saudi and Nadella, again, like, you know, you want to talk about leadership. Microsoft had great economics as a business, but without Nadella's leadership, would they be in the position they are today? Now, it helps that they had such a great profitable business because it bought them time, right? It, it brought them time to, to make these changes and, and to do all that. And it gave them resources to do it all with, like their, their pivot to the cloud under Nadella. Um, but you, I, ideally, you really want both. You really want leadership and you want like a great business model behind it to support it. It's not always possible. But if it's there, you, you, you want both. I'm glad that you raised Intel because I think that, uh, and Intel who had a successful pivot, they're, they're right now, there's some suggestion that they may not be able to, to do that. What, what's your take on Intel? Have you, have you looked at it? I am not the expert to ask on that. Like if you just ask for my like really high, high view, 10,000 foot view, I think they're in a tough position. And uh, I, I think it helps them that the U.S. wants to have like a robust semiconductor chip business at home uh, domesticated. So I think that helps them tremendously. That being said, like they are, you know, if you just looked at the company's Taiwan Semi versus Intel, I mean, Taiwan Sem Semi is just, they're, 
to just right now, like they're just light years ahead of Intel and Intel's losing a lot of their core business to AMD too. So there's, there's, there's a lot of problems I think with Intel. Now, can they turn it around? I think they have time. And I think, like I said, it, it helps them that the US government, it's definitely in the US interest to have a strong chip business at home, based at home, uh, you know, within the borders of our country. So I think that will help Intel make that turnaround, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, some interesting game theory in that one. Um, yeah. what's, what's, your, what's your background? How do you come to be uh, interested in investing? So I actually got involved pretty late in life. Um, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a great home, two loving parents, uh, very blue collar and, uh, but money was like not really an issue. It was just uh, money was needed to be pay for the bills. And we didn't have enough money to invest because that was something that rich people did. And uh, like I went in the Navy and I think even coming out of the Navy, I was in the Navy for six years. I think even coming out of it, uh, I don't, I don't know if I could have written a check when I came out of the Navy. Like I was like, financially, I just had, I, I had no, I was totally clueless, totally clueless. And I got married and I married uh, very well above my, above my pay grade. So I did very well in that. And, and one of the reasons was like, she was a, she's a great saver. And she knew we had to like, we couldn't like just, just spend on whatever we wanted and go in debt and all these things. And uh, I got she got me involved in or interested in Dave Ramsey, who was like a great uh, for beginners, for people who are clueless like me. I mean, he was great just to understand basic budget. I mean, I'm talking about very basic money skills that you need to get through life that I didn't have. And, uh, and, and from there, uh, I got interested in, in investing and I, I started, but I, I mean, I had, I had no clue what I was doing. Like, I mean, just the things I would do is it's, it's, it sounds so stupid in retrospect, like paying very high commission costs for, for very low amount trades, like, you know, and uh, I would, somebody would say, you should buy this company. So I would buy it. And then a month later, if it didn't do anything, I would sell it because, oh, it didn't work. You know, like I, I know no concept for, for time horizons or, or, you know, any kind of understanding at all of stocks. And my wife left the workforce for a few years to care for the kids. So we really didn't have enough money to invest. We bought a house and, you know, it was just like several years later, like before, like I returned to investing, but my wife was going back to the workforce. We were going to have more money. And I knew I should, I should do something to, I should do something with that money. I knew the smart somewhere in my head said, we're going to have extra income coming in. We need to do something smart with this. Like we're living off of my salary. So we should do something smart with her salary. And I, uh, I was up very late one night. I saw one of those clickbaity ads that 3D printing was going to be the next, next like industrial revolution, you know, something like that. Was that a Motley Fool one? Well, let's just. <laughs> you don't want to say, don't want to say. <laughs> it was just a clickbaity ad that I saw. I clicked on it and uh, 3D printing was a spectacular disaster, spectacular disaster for me. But because it was such a disaster, it forced me to like learn what, what did I get wrong here? What did I, it was, it was one of the best mistakes I ever made. In all truth, it, it was a great mistake for me to make because I realized what did, like, what did you get wrong? I got it wrong that it was, there was no, the, the I mean, it was a complete bubble. I, I, when I bought in, if, if you, if you looked at my, if you looked at the peak of 3d investing, I bought 
literally maybe a month before that. Like, I mean, it was the most, the worst timing. You, you couldn't have timed it worse. Like if you tried, like it was just uh, a complete bubble. There was no valuation. There was, it was just an, all a story. Like I read this book even about, like I, I ordered a book online because I was so sold into this. And it was just talking about like, you're not, when you move in the future, you're not going to move your furniture across the country. You're just going to scan it. And when you get to your new house, you're going to 3D print it. And I was like, this, this is how, how, could, right. <laughs> how could this not work? It's going to be amazing, right? So, um, so that's what I was thinking about 3D printing. I mean, there was like no basis, like the economics of that. I don't know. I did not take the time to carefully think that through, obviously. But getting all that wrong really forced me to evaluate like, okay, what am I doing? I know I need to do something smart with my money. This isn't it. And, um, it, and, and it forced me to learn. And I, I did learn. As I started learning, I just, I just loved it. I loved it. I geeked out on it. Um, you know, I, I fell in love with investing and I just learned more and more. And I, you know, I just kind of like dived into it, but, uh, but that was my introduction to invest. My first real introduction was 3d printing. So w when was that, when was that bubble? When did that pop? That's about 2014. And is that, so, you know, that the, the curve of, uh, I, I can't think what the, the, the curve of adoption of technology and it goes through that initial peak where it's yes. very yes yes you, yes I'm the just, s curve or the hype cycle the hype, hype cycle. cycle yeah the yeah, yeah, hype yeah. cycle yes. thank you yeah so has 3d printing gone through it's like trough of despair or whatever that whatever that bottom part is called is it worth a look like there's scars that sometimes don't allow you to go back to look at something <laughs> so think, there's scars there there's real scars there uh you know i'm sure there's industrial uses for funny, 3d printing but uh yeah that's not something uh i will be looking at anytime soon so what was it what did you read then that sort of got you on the right track what was the uh who's your sort of influence in that in that way so there's i would say there's two really initial great influences and one was uh like peter lynch like his investment books like uh and again going back to when i knew nothing about investing i i literally i think i walked into a barnes and noble and i went to the investing section and i i picked up the peter lynch book and i mean like totally lucky but i mean like it, it, peter lynch is two books on investing, like one up on wall street and beating the street. I mean, just completely influential books and, in, and in like the, my basis for investing. And then two, like the Motley Fool, like I learned a ton from those services. Uh, it almost more so from their discussion boards, to be honest with you, Toby, like they had, uh, you know, not so much anymore, but there's still a few robust discussion boards, but a few years ago, they had some discussion boards that were hopping. I think maybe Fintwit kind of sucked the air out of those, you know, those, those discussion board rooms, but, uh, but uh, you know, those, there were some great, great investors on those discussion boards that really helped like walk me through some things. Like when I would have stupid questions, I remember asking someone like on a board, like, well, okay, well, how do you figure out free cash flow? Like, well, and it, like literally he had to go and he did out of his own free time, but explained to me like, all right, go to this company's like, you know, 10Q and you do this and you like, this is the line item. I mean, he had to walk me through it. You know, he couldn't just be like, oh, you know, like operating cash flow minus CapEx. I, I had no idea what that meant. He had to walk me through it step by step. And, uh, and people like that were extremely helpful whenever I had a, a really stupid question. So 
you use that as your basis and then how do you evolve like how do you start uh valuing companies or thinking about uh you know how you make money out of the stock market so i would say like um it really it started off with like a, a really simple thought like at one point i just had an epiphany i i had this hodgepodge of a portfolio and, uh, you know, everything was like a very different thesis. Uh, you know, it was just a little bit of everything turnaround stories mixed in with, and there's nothing wrong with that, but like, I, I didn't have an overall philosophy. I, I was, I was maybe trying, uh, trying I, I to find one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I, I was really searching. And then I really think it was like something just clicked in me one day and I was like, just, just like by the buy the best companies. Like if you just buy the best companies, you'll be okay. And like, uh, you know, I used to go to like stock chart, stock price charts and just be like, look, if you, you and pick any, any stock chart in the universe of any great company, Coca-Cola to, you know, the, I'm talking about 50 year stock price charts, you know, Johnson and Johnson, IBM, like any great company that has been a phenomenal investment over a really long time. And there are plenty of periods, like if you isolate, like, look, if you bought it, if you bought this stock right here for six years, it didn't break that price. You know, like that's a frustrating six years. Yet, if you held on, uh, you had, you would have done phenomenally well. And I think like just doing that and understanding, okay, like if you buy great companies over the long term, you're going to be okay. Now, that from that very simple thought, like, okay, so the next question is like, what's a great company, right? I mean, but like, it was that first thought that was like, buy great companies and hold on for a really long time, and you're going to be okay. And, and, and from there, everything else just kind of filtered through. And so uh, that sort of leads us to the, the, the never sell discussion. So let's, let's discuss that a little bit. What's your interpretation of that? And, and how do you how do you think about it? So I think people, when they criticize it, mostly get it wrong. So I'd first start, I would say it's mostly aspirational, not prescriptive, though there's nuance here. It, it, it can be prescriptive too. I would first start to say though, like when I buy a company, there's no exit plan. Like, like, yeah, yes, of course, like there's, there's things I'm going to look for. And I'm going to keep tabs on it. And um, if, if, if it starts to really fail, I mean, we'll get into this, but like, there is a, there is a time to, to sell companies. However, like going into an investment, I want a company when I, one of the things I really look for when I establish a position is like, do I think I can hold on to this company for a really, really long time? And if that's the case, like, Okay. Now, again, going back to just looking at really long-term stock price charts and isolating these periods of time where a company maybe got a little ahead of itself in valuation, uh, maybe it had some short-term problems. Like you could talk about Chipotle, like when they had its like food poisoning issues. Like, and I don't have a position in Chipotle, but like, if you looked at that, like you could say like, I don't think this is going to kill the company. And they're changing their procedures or they're changing their policies. And it, it, it's definitely a short-term hit. But uh, like, you know, David Gardner, one of the co-founders of Motley Fool says, like, are these storm clouds you can see through? 
Like, are they, are these storm clouds? Like you can see like the sun, like, yeah, it's dark where, you know, I live in South Florida and there can be a thunderstorm coming in. But if I look on the horizon, do I see a patch of sunlight there? And, you know, a lot of times uh, the answer to that is, is yes. Like, okay, these are problems this company's having. Now, sometimes you don't know, like we talked about Intel a little bit. Are these storm clouds you can see through or are these like permanent like dark clouds that Intel's never going to regain, regain its greatness. I don't know enough about that company to know the difference. However, if you know enough and you think they are temporary, this is probably a great time to get into Intel. Uh, or if you know enough and know it's not temporary, then it's not, a, you know, it might be a horrible time to get into Intel. But like being able to like discern the difference between long-term and long-term, pro- long-term fundamental problems with your thesis or short-term problems that a company can get through can make a real difference. And uh, so I think that philosophy never sell, like it can get you through those times. And especially, especially like seven investing, we're really for individual retail investors. We want to be champions for them. And like, that's something like as an individual investor, you don't have to answer to other people. You're not managing other people's money. You don't have to answer for your, if you have a bad quarter or two bad quarters, or, you know, you don't have to answer to that. You're just answerable to yourself. You're accountable to yourself. So there's, if you don't have anyone to answer to, and you really know like, okay, I understand what's going on. I understand why the stock price is down. I I get why the market is, is dinging this company right now, but these are short-term problems that it's going to work through. And that philosophy, that underpinning of never sell, of long-term buy and hold investing can get you through those kinds of problems. And you're an individual investor. You can add at these dips. You don't have to establish a position once and for all. Like you can never add to that. You know, most people in their working careers are adding to their portfolios regularly. And uh, if you can do that, then these are great opportunities to add a company and to add to a position. And so I think never sell kind of gets you through a lot of those short-term problems that great that every single great company has ever had. And, and that's why you refer to those particular periods. That's the prescription in the sense that don't be scared out of the position because Correct. there's some short-term issue or the stock's down Correct. in that instance. Just follow the rule that you never sell. And then um, when you're a little bit cooler or something like that, consider the the exact uh, nature of the problem that you're confronting and whether this is sort of a permanent issue that you should therefore sell out of or temporary and keep holding. 100%. You, you can't be scared of drawdowns. Like that's, uh, they're going to happen. Like, and I think every, every great investor ever has had those periods. Every comp, if every great company has it, every, you know, every investor has them and, you know, you, you can't, uh, it's gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching when your portfolio falls or when a company in your portfolio falls. Like I remember like having some real uh, valleys of doubt. Like, what am I doing? Like, you know, or especially early on, especially, and I think like for newer investors, like that's the biggest danger because my portfolio now, like, you know, I've, I've been very blessed. I, I, I've done very well over the last few years. It's been a great market. And I can't imagine a drawdown that takes me under the amount of money I put into it. But when you're a new investor and you go beneath, you go below that level, it's, it's gut-wrenching and you will have 
those periods, like, what am I doing? Like what I should just index or I should, I shouldn't invest at all because the market is rigged. You're going to go through those periods. I think everybody does. I think everybody does, you know, not everybody gets in at a, at a great time. Um, so I would say like, yeah, you have to understand though, that that is, that is the cost of playing this game and you're going to have those drawdowns and it's, it's never fun. It's always painful, but, um, but if you're invested in the right companies, you're you're going to get through it. Given that your approach is aspirationally never sell, ideally never sell, uh, to what extent does a valuation come into your your purchase of a stock? Do you think that this is a this is an unusually good time, or this is a good time to enter, or this is a bad time to enter for those reasons that you know? If it does get very expensive, that may you know when you you talked earlier about there. Are, there might be a six-year period where Procter and Gamble or something doesn't go anywhere, and my interpretation of that would be that it probably it got a little bit ahead of itself six years before, and and it just takes some time to work off that overvaluation. And I've seen this is this happened regularly with companies that were very good through to the uh, 2000s. There was that sort of it was a tech bubble but it was a little bit broader than that there were a lot of great companies that got very just microsoft being one just got too expensive right and then there was a period of sort of a decade or or more 10 years to 15 years where they didn't go anywhere even though the underlying businesses were still quite strong and quite and growing very healthily that was probably as a result of them just being too expensive and i think you can avoid some of those problems by incorporating valuation into your approach yeah valuation matters so I, I will i will not be the one here to say uh valuation does not matter you know there was a uh, vitaly knelson if, if you're familiar with his blog he he did a great look at some of the um the nifty 50 stocks from the 70s and uh and, and these were like the these were like uh, very loosely, I think you could say maybe the fang of their day, right? Like these were the stocks that were supposed to do great and great companies and just invest in the nifty 50 stocks and you're going to be okay. And one of the companies he highlighted from that time was McDonald's. And he said, I, I forget the years. So uh, for, forget, you know, I'm being very loose here, but, you know, basically in the, in the late sixties or early seventies, you could have pitched McDonald's and said, they're going to grow internationally. They can expand to breakfast. Uh, there's still room to grow in this country and they can grow their sales, you know, uh, like by this amount over the next few years, this is a great company to still get into. And up until that time, McDonald's had done nothing but grow. And you would have been right about all those things. Like over the next decade, McDonald's expanded internationally, opened up for breakfast, uh, you know, kept growing within the country, grew same store sales, all these things. In fact, like within like a, I forget the parity pick, but it was like a nine-year horizon. They 6X'd their revenue. So they they grew phenomenally. And yet during that time, like its stock price was down because like the stocks just got too ahead of themselves. So uh, one, you have to incorporate some kind of valuation into this. So th there are some great companies out there that you look at the valuation and you're like, this 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 can't be the right time to buy this company like it just it's just not um I, i'm trying to think of a of a really good example right now but like but like there will be great companies that like maybe and it's not always like this i mean 
you can definitely pick some SaaS names right now, but I think you can also pick some of like the more mature, like dividend kind of aristocrat kind of names too, like uh, that that pay a dividend and they're they're selling for like almost a 30x multiple. And I'm like, you know, and they're growing very slowly. Great companies, great companies, uh, you know, but is this the right time to buy those companies? Probably not. And, and you... I wish there was a magic number you could you, right? Like, I think we all wish there was a magic number. Don't buy any stock with a PE over 25, right? Or there's a magic number like that. There's not. You have to, I think you really have to take it on a case by case basis. You have to look at the markets they're in. You have to look at uh, th their growth rates. You have to look at their uh, competition, their moats. Like, is their moat growing? Is their moat shrinking? Uh, you know, like you have to look at all those things. And I wish there was a magic number. Uh, so if there is, help me out here, Toby. But <laughs> no, I was also if you were going to tell me. <laughs> but I think you have to take it on a case by case basis. Um, now, that being said, one thing I do, like, especially when it comes out to, I, I might be getting a little ahead of ourselves. But when I build positions in my portfolio, like I do it slowly. I, I never, I, what works for me is like, there's been times if I think a company has a great economic moat, and I'm not talking about wildly overvalued, but if I think like, this is not where I want this stock, like, let's say I'm just hypothetical. Let's say I could justify a stock trading at 30 times PE, but at that it's in the high thirties or at 40 PE. Uh, like, is this the, is that a, my ideal valuation for that stock? No. Um, and, and I work it out in my head and I look at the, you know, the IRR I could get on that position uh, in the next few years. And I don't know if it works, but I'll take a small position. If I think the moat is great and I think it's a great company, if I think it has the right leadership, if it checks all my boxes besides valuation, I usually do not let that stop me from establishing a position. And it's a small position. And when I take these small positions, so we just talked about never sell and long-term buy and holding. When I take that first initial position, I don't believe in that. I'll cut these kinds of companies. I can cut these kinds of companies kind of quick, especially when I'm still learning about that company. Um, like, so I'll throw out a company, Palantir. I think like it has very interesting management. I think it's expanding into commercial applications uh, with data analysis, and it's using a really neat mix of human intelligence and AI and machine learning to do this data analysis. And I think when a company or a government agency is using Palantir, like it's very hard for, I don't think they're leaving the Palantir platform. That's what I say is my thesis. It's valuation I cannot make sense of right now, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I bought this company late last year, a very small position. And within months, it like it more than tripled. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't know really what to do with that because I thought in five years at its high valuation that I thought I bought it at, I thought in five years, best case scenario, it could triple. So it tripled in a couple months. I held it. I held it. And it's come down from that. And it's, it's still very expensively valued, but like, I want to keep tabs on it and I want to learn more about it. And I think it could really surprise to the upside companies great companies have a way of doing that. Like, you know, we could talk about Amazon and, and AWS and then advertising and now logistics, you know, just great companies find ways to continue to like find ways to make money and they surprise you. And I think, so I'm, I'm holding Palantir. I think it's expensive. 
Um, I, I don't know if I could justify to you its valuation, but it's a small position. And if it dips like a lot or, you know, goes back to like my original stock price or it starts to grow more and I feel like that's not reflected in the stock price anymore, I might take another little bite of it. Uh, but I just, I, I usually build positions at very little bites. And by doing that, I feel like, you know, there, there's obviously diversification of your portfolio and you have different asset classes and different like industries within your stocks and, and things like that. But I think another way to diversify is over time. So, I, and, and averaging up is a big part of that. I feel like a lot of investors don't like averaging up. And uh, I think that's a hurdle you just have to get over. You, you can't be like, I, I think some people get in their heads and like, well, I have a, I have a 10 bagger in, in, in square. So I don't want to, I don't want to add to it here, or I have a 10 bagger in this company. And if I add to it, well, then it's only like a two bagger. I don't want to do that. Like who wants to do that? You know, I want to say I have a 10 bagger. Um, you have to get over that. If you have a great company that can continue to grow, like we, we could take um, Microsoft, for instance, it's a, it's a sizable position in my personal portfolio. Um, it, it's something I've added to almost every year for the last six years. I, I, I bet every year, at least once a year for the last five years. And uh, it's sometimes more than once a year. And it's just something I slowly add to. Um, hopefully in those times, I'm finding like good times, like on a, you know, where its valuation is more reasonable than not because every stock zigzags up and down. Uh, hopefully I'm trying to do that. But by diversifying over time, I feel like I'm um, just like at the same way people dollar cost average into an index, I, I believe in dollar cost averaging into a company, a, a great company. So I'm a big fan of uh, adding to a position slowly and over time. And I don't mind taking a small bite, especially to get started if I feel like it's overvalued. What's your sourcing process like how do you find the ideas that you ultimately want to own but you know certainly want to research more that's a really good question i wish i had a really straightforward process for this uh look sometimes i just run screens at night you know like uh you, you know on 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 ticker or wide charts sometimes like like i remember once it, it was over my thanksgiving break there's a thread on twitter and somebody asked, like, what are your best, like, micro, micro cap stocks? Like, what are your best micro cap ideas right now? And there was like, it was a, from a big account. And so there was like 100 responses. And I started plugging them all in Morningstar, like on my phone. Like, you know, it was like after, I think it was after Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you're around, you're, you're following, you just starting them in Morningstar. And I think I went through 50 and like, just right away, you can tell, like, you look at a stock, like, that's not for me. It might be fine. It's just not for me. And I got to one, like, that's really interesting. And I'm not only buying it for my personal portfolio, but recommending it for, for seven investing subscribers. But uh, so Twitter, but I, I just feel like it's a game where you have to look under a lot of rocks. And I, I wish there was a better way to do that. Uh, you want, that's one of the problems hopefully we're solving for seven investing members, right? Is that we have a lot of people looking under rocks and we can just like kind of present those ideas to them. But, uh, but it, it's, a, it's if Toby, if, if there's a position I look at through 13 Fs, Toby, I look through your portfolio. Like what does Toby think is a really good value right now? You know, and, and, uh, 
and and, uh, and, and does that work for me? Uh, does that work for a long-term buy and hold? You know, does that work? Uh, I'll look through 13 apps. I'll look through people. I'll look on Twitter. I'll, I'll, I'll look uh, almost anywhere. What about uh, diversifying the portfolio? And you know, does, if if something gets too uh, big in the portfolio, do you, do you cut it back, or you say that's just that's the luck of the draw and let it ride? So it's a great problem to have because it usually means like a position has gone up a lot. Usually, I, I'm in a position where I add to my portfolio almost every month because I'm working. And I just continue to add money to my portfolio. When a position starts to run away from me, I just stop adding to it. And most of the time that solves the problem. Like I just start adding to other positions. I don't add to it. Like I say, I like to add to like, like I bought Microsoft several times over the last five or six years. Um, you know, I bought a, a company called Paycom a lot less because I got in it. At, at, you know, in, in, when it was in the $30 and now it's in the $400. And so I've never had to add to it. It just did it on its own. Right. Um, but it's not too big of a position in my portfolio because during that time that, you know, that might've been four years ago, uh, four or five years ago, during that time, I just added to everything else. And I don't think I've ever added to Paycom again. Um, but it's, it's at a nice size in my portfolio because it's grown so much, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's not like ridiculous either. So I usually for me, for if I'm saying in a lot of retail investors are um, are still adding to their portfolios during their working career, like I just say, like, at, just start, start adding to other things, you know, l- let it grow. Um, if you are not at that phase in your in your work life where you're more where you're withdrawing from a, a portfolio to, to live or something like that, then withdraw from that position, you know. If you're retired and you're living off your portfolio, uh, start withdrawing from that position. Uh, if you have a kid that's going through college, you know, and, and that's too big for you, then, then withdraw to that. Very rarely would I advise someone to uh, rebalance just to because it's too big in their portfolio. Like, you know, winners keep winning, I think is a, you know, and never sell are good things to keep in mind for that. A lot of times, if a company is up 50x, and not always. So there's a million exceptions to it, but a lot of times the company's doing something right and it has an economic moat to get that far and it's going to keep winning and keep doing well. In uh, in seven investing, when you have periods like now where it, the market seems expensive, there don't seem to be a huge number of opportunities around. Um, what do you, what do you do in those instances? Do you just, you know, what, what do you do in those instances? So I, there's usually, there's, well, there, there's never been a time like I, I have not felt good about adding to a company. Like there's usually some company I follow. Now we can talk. We I know we have different views on valuation. So, but I think a fantastic conversation would be absolute valuation versus relative valuation. But like I add personally to my portfolio every month. And like, sometimes I'm not thrilled about evaluation, but but again, I feel like when you add to great companies over time, one thing I like about this style of investing is that time I feel is on your side. So when you buy a stock that's overvalued a little bit, but it has an economic moat 
and um, it's done well, but maybe I feel like the stock price is a little ahead of itself. In fact, most of the stock purchases purchases I make in my portfolio, I feel like like I, it's never the valuation I want, right? You always want a better valuation. Like uh, there's never a time where you're like, oh, I, I'm just, this <laughs> Got is, it. <laughs> you know, uh, but time is, I feel like it's on your side for these companies. And I, one of the things that, I've tried, I, I don't, so I would say I've tried value investing. Um, and the thing that always worries me is that it feels like most of the time, not all of the time, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's a melting ice cube, as, as, as Bill Brewster would say. Like, you know, it's, a, it's that melting ice cube and time is not on your side. So you need that, that catalyst to get its valuation back to what, you know, what you're looking for, intrinsic value, or whatever it is, you know, you wanted to close that margin of safety you have um, before like the business deteriorates further. And so like, I've been, I've been caught personally in several, what I would call value traps where I just thought it was a great value. And uh, like, it was just too cheap. Like the business isn't great. It's not doing well, but it's, it's still, it's that's more than reflected in the stock price. And then, but I never know, like, I, I always feel like there's that ticking clock, right? Like that, that the um, the hourglass of sand is is running out on time for for that stock to regain uh, its intrinsic value or back to the mean or you know so uh, I feel like when you buy a company with a great economic mode time is on your side and they usually are overvalued or look overvalued at least at first glance so that that's the other thing like um, I, I feel like with these types of companies time is on your side. And like I bought Amazon five years ago at the time, Toby, I would have told you with a straight face, like, I think it's overvalued here. You know, it's probably a little ahead of itself, but it's been a phenomenal investment, you know? Um, and I feel like a lot of times these great companies look expensive um, and, and maybe they are in that moment based off of trailing metrics, but I don't think they're expensive on longer term time horizons. So um I personally have not felt like, uh, like I always recommend stocks I own. Like, it, like I'll, I would never recommend somebody else buy a stock that I don't own. And, and, and usually like stock I recommend is stock I'm adding to in my personal portfolio that month, you know, unless it's like a really large position. But, uh, but I, I've never, I have not had to worry about that yet. Now we're, we're, we're still less than two years old. So, you know, uh, you, you know, the company seven investing, we're still less than two years old. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what would happen if we went through like a 2000 type bubble or something like that, where I thought things were really outrageous, but I don't think we're in a bubble, anything approaching the 2000 tech bubble right now. How would you characterize what you do then? If it's not value investing, what would you say? Or what's the, and what's the, what, where does seven investing come from the name? So we offer, we offer seven recommendations each month. So that's where the number comes from. Now, a lot of those recommendations are re-recommendations, right? So like you could, you could, uh, you know, I don't want to like give out like something we've recommended, but there's been several companies we've recommended more than once, more than twice, you know, uh, and, you know, as we continue, you know, that number will continue to grow. Um, you know, we, we have plenty of freedom to, to re-recommend companies uh, over and over again that we think are, are great investments. Um, so that's where the, the name comes from. And what was the other part to that question? 
Well, well how do you characterize what you do? I, I was going to, I thought that potentially the seven investing was related to the, uh, to the style of investment, but how would you describe your style of investment? How would you characterize it? So I would say in a very generic way, quality investing, but like, I, I don't, again, it's then it, it gets down to always like, how do you define quality and, and, and things like that? And I think it might be different for different types of companies. Um, but like, that's how I define it to myself internally, like by companies with wide economic votes. Mostly that's mostly if, if somebody looked at my portfolio, if somebody looked at most of my recommendations, they would say growth investing. Right. Um, but, but not always. So you can take a company like Moody's. Like, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, a, a growth company necessarily. I just think it's a great company that's not going to be disrupted. Like outside of a really, uh, outside of regulatory actions that I do not see on the horizon right now. Like it's too invaluable to the entire, the, the way the entire fixed income market works. Uh, you know, S&P, you know, S&P Global is another one, uh, you know, same, same market. Those aren't, I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't call those two companies growth companies. I mean, they're growing, yes, but like, you know, they could have years where they don't grow. Uh, you know, there's a bit of lumpiness to their cycles, but their economic moats are so wide. I feel like you could buy it and hold it. And over time, five, 10 years, you're going to have market beating returns. Wide moat quality growth investing that you can have to seven yes. investing might be easy. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Matt, uh, we're coming up on time. If folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? So you can, well, one, let me uh, thank you for the opportunity, but I'll, I'll plug the website like uh, seveninvesting.com. Like I offer monthly recommendations there with my other fellow lead advisors. And also I'm, uh, I'm probably too active on Twitter and I check it too much. And I'm at Matt underscore Cochran seven uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm, if you, if you DM me, if you, uh, or just tag me, like I'll, I will see it probably way too quickly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like somebody would probably be like, Oh wow. I caught him while he's on. Yeah. You probably will. <laughs> but uh yeah. So the two best ways. Yeah, great Twitter account. I can attest to that. Uh, thank you. Matt Cochran, lead advisor from Seven Investing. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Toby. <laughs>